easy shortcut. Um, if somehow you made it into the sanctuary uh, without grabbing your Lord's Supper elements, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon this morning. Now could be a good time to just slip out real quick and grab those that are just right outside these doors uh, in the upper lobby, and then you can come in and get settled in for our time in the Word. And while you're turning to Romans 7, um, I want to acknowledge the heaviness of the week and also uh, this fact. If, if I had a blank sermon preaching calendar, if I didn't have anything planned for today, in light of this past week's events, we probably wouldn't be in Romans chapter 7 this morning. We might go someplace else to sit in lament together or to fight for hope or to speak of justice. We might do that this morning instead. Uh, but what I find, one of the challenges as, uh, as a preacher is, is knowing when to deviate, when to remain on course. There's a certain steadiness to the Word of God so that we don't need our interactions with it to only and always be reactionary, always a knee-jerk reaction to whatever the, the difficulty of the day is. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to stay in Romans 7. We're going to stay uh, in our scheduled time because the Word of God is an anchor to us in the storms of life. And sometimes what our hearts and souls need is a passage that puts our brains and our faith in a different type of thinking uh, so that the Lord can heal and strengthen and encourage us. And so, if you wonder this morning, why are we going to stay in Romans chapter 7? That's why. No one's asking. You weren't wondering that. I just felt compelled um, to help you know why we are where we are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And we need to eat this morning. And we need the nourishment that comes from it. There's much in our lives that leaves us in want, raises questions, and hurts. But I'm grateful that when we come and we sit with your word open, we find you to be the speaking God, never the silent God. So give us ears to hear, hearts to receive this morning so that your word would go deep in us and bear gospel fruit. And Father, here, renew our strength and our joy and our hope, all that we need, not just for the week behind, but for the week ahead. And not for the week ahead, but let's just go for the next six hours. Lord, strengthen us for this very moment. And let us not just coast on this day's food, but even later today and multiple times tomorrow and the day after that to consume, to eat, to sit with you, to hear your voice, to be nourished and encouraged by you. Father, help me to communicate your word clearly so that we would all understand what you are saying to us and so that we would all find our deepest, greatest joy in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever used a good tool in a wrong way and had really disastrous results? I've got an example from our life 
um, several, several years ago, we were going on a, a vacation, summertime, and I paid a, a teenager to mow our yard while we were gone. And I also told him that uh, I had some weed killer that we needed him to spray in some spots, a few specific spots uh, where the weeds were bad. And so we left, we came back home to a beautifully manicured lawn. The, the kid did a great job. And then about a week after getting back home, we started seeing these parallel lines of dead grass showing up in our yard. And at first we didn't understand what was going on, but I mean about every four feet, here's a stripe, here's a stripe, here's a stripe. And then we realized what this uh, sweet boy had done. He didn't understand the nature of this spot weed killer. He thought you just, he walked in rows on our yard and hosed the yard down with this weed killer. Now, look, to his credit, weeds did not grow in the places where <laughs> that stuff fell. In fact, grass didn't grow. We, it looked like the world's worst football field, just stripes of dead grass and dirt right there. Um, so he used a good tool in the wrong way. It had really bad results. That same concept can be applied to our study of Romans, at least to the subject matter we're wrestling with today, which is the law of God. And, and so here's what Paul's going to do with us this morning in chapter 7. He's going to help us understand the good use of the law so that we don't use it in the improper way. Up to this point in Paul's letter, He's been seemingly harsh about God's law. He said a lot of critical things that seem to put God's law in real negative light. And you have to understand for this original audience and even for a modern audience, to speak ill of God's law would seem like you are speaking ill of God himself. And so when it comes to God's law, you and I, we're kind of like teenage landscapers with jugs full of weed killer we will often take God's law, which is a good tool, and we will use it in the wrong way, and the result can be truly disastrous. And that's what Paul is striving to correct this morning. In Paul's criticisms of the law, it would leave the reader asking, well, what's my relationship to God's law? If the law is bad, where do I turn? Well, that's what Paul is going to give us this morning. In the passage we're studying today, Paul clarifies the good purposes of God's law as well as the limitations of God's law. He's correcting bad theology in Romans chapter 7. And when this particular aspect of our theology is correct, the result is overflowing joy and gladness in our relationship with Christ. So if you came in here this morning at a joy deficit... If you walked in here today struggling to be glad in the Lord, Romans chapter 7 might just be the perfect passage. It's not what you would have guessed. It's not what you would have thought. But I'm telling you, what we're studying this morning is rocket fuel for our joy in Jesus Christ. So my purpose in preaching this passage is for your joy in Christ to be renewed. And if we study this passage right, we'll see the proper value and the proper limitations of God's law, as well as the amazing power of Christ's love that took him all the way to the cross. And so today I want to show you the two proper ways to understand God's law. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. 
We're going to go to the end of the chapter. Paul writes this. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. In this rather wordy passage, Paul helps us understand the proper use of God's law. There are several things the law can do. There are several things the law cannot do. I want to explain these, and then I'm at the end of all of this, I'm going to give you the sermon in a sentence. You might say, if you just give us the sermon in a sentence now, we can go home early. That's just rude, and it hurts my feelings when you say those things. So now I'm going to go extra long just because of that. No, I won't. But I I want you to understand, it's a complex passage. It's classic Paul, if we can call it that. But it is understandable, and it is joy for us when we understand the proper use of God's law as well as its limitations. So I want to give this to you in two categories. Uh, We're going to talk first about the benefits of the law, and then second we'll talk about the limitations of the law. Let's start with the good purposes of God's law. What are the benefits 
of the law. In verses 7 through 12, Paul makes it clear that the law of God is not bad. The law is not the problem. In fact, the law possesses several positive benefits. Uh, many times, New Testament Christian people will, will think of the Word of God or think of God's law as something secondary or will throw it away. Or we, just, we just don't need those things because we're under grace. So this is where Paul would get in your face and say, you've got it wrong. There are some real tangible spiritual benefits to the law of God. We can't just throw it away. So we, but we've got to understand our relationship to it. So what are the benefits of the law? The first benefit of the law that Paul gives us is that the law diagnoses sin. In verse 7, he makes that really clear for us that the law has this diagnose, diagnostic purpose, diagnosing sin in our lives. He starts with a rhetorical question in verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Again, if all we had were just Paul's criticisms of the way that the law has been used from earlier in the letter, we might think he hates God's law. So this would be a natural question. Is the law sin? And Paul's answer emphatically, absolutely not. And so he wants us to get this clear. That the law is not sin itself, nor does it make us sin. That's not the role of it, and that's not why God gave it to us. In fact, he's going to tell us in verse 7 here, it's got this diagnostic purpose to it. Verse 7, he says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So the law is not sin itself. Rather, the law is like a spotlight that reveals sin in us. And so as an example, Paul tells us this. He says, look, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, do not covet. So what the law accomplishes is not the removal of sin, but the highlighting of it. To put it another way, the law is diagnosis, but it is not cure. Several years ago in college, I fell off my skateboard and I cracked my elbow. It was quite devastating. The worst part of it was the very next day I was getting on a plane to fly to my girlfriend Melissa's house and I was going to spend time with her in my first extended time with her parents who were to become my future in-laws. And so uh, just imagine how impressed they were with me when I walk off the plane with my arm in a cast from shoulder to wrist Hey, what's up? How you doing? Can't shake with this hand, got to shake with this one. Because I fell off my skateboard. I'm practically an adult. I fell off my skateboard and broke my arm. Now, imagine I show up uh, to Melissa's house, uh, and my arm is not in a cast. It's just hanging there flopping around like this. And her mom, who was a nurse, would say, What's the deal with your arm? Oh, I fell off my skateboard, and it's cracked. Check that out. Isn't that cool? Amazing. Look at this. And she would say, where's your cast? And I would say, I don't need a cast because I have an x-ray. Look at this. Boom, right there. Cracked elbow. See that? That's why it spins this way. And she would say, well, doesn't that hurt? And I would say, oh, it hurts horrifically. You have no idea the constant pain I am every waking moment of the day. And she would ask, would, would you like some ibuprofen? I don't need ibuprofen. I've got an x-ray. Look, there's the location of the pain. It's this general crackly area where the pain is radiating from. As long as I've got my x-ray, I don't need a cast. I don't need ibuprofen. I think I'll be okay. That's not the purpose of the x-ray. You know that. 
The x-ray is not cure. The x-ray is diagnosis. And so is God's law to our souls. The law is not cure. The law is diagnosis. It shows us that we are broken in our sin. Not even just broken, that we are dead in our sin. It's incapable of removing sin, but it is entirely capable to help us understand that we are hurting broken people in need of rescue. So, whenever we live as if the law is a cure for us, we're doing so improperly. The law can only diagnose our sin. It has never been sin's solution. There's a second benefit of the law in this passage. The second benefit is this. The law reveals sin. So it diagnoses sin. Another good purpose is that it reveals sin. In verse 8, Paul says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So commandment means the law, the law of God. Seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me. Coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is death. So what Paul describes here is an ambush type of scenario. Imagine you're walking along with the law of God, and the law says, do not covet. You think to yourself, I don't covet. I am quite content with my 2007 Honda Pilot with a little bit of rust around the wheel well. I'm a, that's my car. If that's yours also, I'm not making fun of you. That's my car. I'm perfectly content. Don't need another car. And then here comes the ambush. Around the corner comes a 2008 Honda Pilot. And you think, I will never be happy unless I get one of those. All of my life depends on me having the 2008 model. Sin seized the opportunity through the commandment to create coveting in me. It's as if the law of God flushes sin out of hiding. It forces sin into the open. And this is good for you to know. It's good to know that the law draws sin out so that the law makes us confront the reality of our brokenness. We cannot esteem ourselves as basically good or even better than others by whatever standard we evaluate that, the law of God shows us how broken we are in our need for rescue. A third benefit of the law is that the law was defeated by our sin. That seems kind of counterintuitive. How can that be good that the law gets crushed by sin in this epic battle? Paul explains it. Starting in verse 9, he begins with this sort of idyllic scene. He says, once... I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life. You need to understand, what's the point of the law? It was meant for life, but it resulted in death in me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The law is meant for life, but sin sprang up, it deceived, and it killed. Sin defeated our law or God's law in us. So who is responsible for our spiritual death? The law is not responsible. My own sin is responsible. My sin is the killer. My sin is the deceiver. I'm the one that's responsible. The law didn't make me bad. My own sin is what has separated me from God. How's it a benefit? that the law was defeated by sin? Well, again, when you're, you have a serious diagnosis, you only want the medicine that helps. And although the law was intended to bring life, our sin turns the law into lethal 
medicine. It's to our benefit to know that the law is not the cure for our sin. Fourth and final benefit of the law is that the law reveals the heart of God. I love verse 12. Paul summarizes these benefits in this beautiful little line. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. When he says the law and then he says and the commandment, he's not speaking of two different things. It's one and the same. The law, the commandment, all the same thing. It's holy. It's just. It's good. The law does have something to tell us about God. And, and so here we look at the law and we see that the law is holy, just, and good. It's not sin-making. It's not sin-creating. We see the good nature of the law. We also see the good nature of the law-giver. If the law is this way, the one who gave the law is like that and even more so. So if the law is holy and just and good, then the law-giver is also holy and just and good. He's so unlike us. He gives us what is good. He gives us what is meant for life. And in return, we give Him rebellion. And how does God respond to our rebellion? Not by giving more law in the futile attempt to rescue us by our own power. No, He doesn't give us more law. He gives us more grace. The law is holy and just and good, but it is not a redeemer. It is not a savior. It is not atonement for our sin. The law giver is grace giver. And the law helps us see this clearly. So Paul's given us these benefits of the law. Diagnosis sin, reveals sin, defeat, was defeated by sin, and it reveals the heart of God. But now, the rest of the passage, he pivots to help us understand the limitations of the law. Again, this is not Paul bashing what God has given us. He is correcting our errors, our wrong theology when it comes to how to handle the Word of God or the law of God. And so now he's going to give us the limits of the law. There's a few things that the law cannot do. The first of those is this. The law cannot produce spiritual life. When I say spiritual life, what I mean here is the opposite of spiritual death. The law of God does not revive, does not regenerate, does not give new life. It is incapable of that, was never meant to do that. It cannot do that. And Paul makes that clear for us in verse 13. I, he again asks a rhetorical question that he answers emphatically in the negative Verse 13, therefore did what is good become death to me? What's the good thing? Well, is, that's the law. Is, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So sin is what creates death. The law cannot overcome that and produce spiritual life in its place. And so I said last week, if you remember, and uh, I hope you do, oftentimes we think that more law will result in less sin. If I've got a lot of sin, then I, I need more law, and that will take care of my sin. And not even religious law, just some sort of moral code of my own making or something that is culturally considered appropriate. Uh, I'll, I'll take some church law, I'll take some of my own moral code, I'll take some of what culture gives me, mash it all up, and all of that law will certainly result in less sin. That's just not the truth. 
More law does not result in less sin. And Paul is drilling into our minds the truth that even a little law results in sin beyond measure. So the law cannot rescue us from death and give us life. There's a second limitation to the law here. And this second limitation is the law cannot overpower our sin. Now, verses 14 through 20, we've got a really, this really complicated passage. And I'm quite confident that as we were reading through it, maybe you, you made this sort of face. You're like, hmm, what does this mean? I've heard this. This is familiar. I don't quite understand what it's saying. That's how I read it anyways. And, and here's the big challenge when you come to study this particular passage. The challenge is this. What perspective is Paul speaking from? Is he speaking from the perspective of a believer or a non-believer? Is this autobiographical material? Or Paul runs through this list of what I wish I could do, but I'm not doing, but I want to do something else, but I'm not doing that. Is this Paul speaking of his own experience, or is he speaking of something a little more general? Let me just start reading through this, and I want you to ask yourself as I'm reading, is this a believer or a non-believer? What perspective is Paul speaking from? Starting in verse 14, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. And if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it's the sin that lives in me. So, believer, non-believer, what perspective is Paul coming from here? Really, it kind of depends on what verse you're reading. Take verse 19, for example. You look at verse 19, and it sounds like, uh, Paul here is speaking from uh, the perspective of, what, of a non-believer, or excuse me, of a believer. Verse 19, he says, I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. So that sounds like a believer struggling with holiness. I think any number of Christians in this room would say, that's kind of been my story, and I feel this from time to time. I'm not doing the good I want to do, but I'm just doing, doing the wrong thing. So that sounds like a believer. But then verse 20, the very next verse, Paul says, Now if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So uh, he just spent all of chapter 6 telling us that sin is dead in the believer. Through our union with Christ, we've died to sin. We've been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. So how can sin live in me if sin is dead? That sounds like Paul is speaking from the perspective of someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. So which is it, believer or non-believer? Any Bible study on this passage is going to nail down in one of these areas. They just The responsible writer has to. But I really like the position a Bible scholar named Tom Schreiner has taken. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in with Schreiner on this. And you're welcome to join us or just do your own thing. That's okay, too. We've got freedom in the interpretation of this passage. But here's how Schreiner makes sense of this. He says, Paul is describing the plight of a non-believer all the time and the plight of a believer some of the time. 
for the non-follower of Jesus Christ. What Paul's just described is their experience all the time. Want to do good. I can recognize there's evil in me, but, but I don't have the ability to be the good person that I want to be. I can't be the best person even among the people I know, let alone a person good enough to find and earn the favor of God. That is always, every day, every moment, the experience of every person apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone. And sometimes believers struggle as well. For the Christian, it's true we will sin, but we're not slaves to sin any longer. As Christians, we enjoy substantial, significant, and observable victory over sin in this life. Yes, we fail. And sometimes believers fail horribly. But still, we are dramatically changed by the grace of God. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus... Look, you've probably tried to deal with your sin by living by your own law, but I want you to look at what Paul says about your sin in verse 14. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, you are sold as a slave under sin. Sin is not some occasional mess up. Sin is your master. It is a tyrannical master. It destroys you. It produces such shame and guilt. And your attempt to deal with your shame and guilt by making some moral changes, by introducing law to the problem, is just falling short. Look, you cannot just do better and be better. That's not the way the human soul works. What's the outcome when we just try to do better? Verse 15 says you can continue to do what, you're, what you hate. Your, your sin causes you not just to do the evil things you want to do, but it leads you to do the evil things you don't even want to do. According to verse 20, your sin is like a squatter, an unwanted tenant, a parasite that is draining you of life. Your sin is more powerful than whatever law you choose to live by. This is hard to believe because our moral codes are convincing to us and convincing to others that we are basically good people. And as long as you insist that you alone are the one anomaly to the human race, then you don't need Jesus. You have yourself and, and you will find whatever blessing and comfort you can give to yourself. It's amazing how cheap a human soul is. A little earthly success, a few dollars in the pocket the admiration of others, and you will feel like this is what you were made for. It costs the tempter nothing, and it costs you everything. Your sin is more powerful than your desire to do good, and your law cannot overcome it. You have to understand the limitations of your moral code. One last limitation of the law. The law cannot do what only Jesus can do. These final verses in chapter 7 are a famous lament from Paul. Paul speaks as a person who's exhausted by their sin and desperate for a solution the law cannot provide. His sin and our sin is oppressive. In verse 14, he called sin our slave master. In verse 21, he says sin is always present with him. In verse 23, he says sin is his wartime enemy. Also in verse 23, he says sin is his prison. 
He can't break free from it. He is flooding us with mental pictures so that we can understand the devastation of this dark passenger in our lives and our great need to be free from it. And then here at the end comes a question that every one of us in this room has to ask. Look at verse 24. He says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The entire section, even I think the entire chapter, has been building to this very moment and to this proclamation. The law of God cannot save us from sin. And as Paul rattles off those word pictures and helps us understand how huge and devastating our sin is, it leaves us with a sense of hopelessness. If I can't fix me, who's going to fix me? If I can't rescue me, who's going to rescue me? And then comes this proclamation, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the rescuer. There's the saving one. There's the one who's going to do what the law cannot do. He is the only one who will rescue us from our sin. Why Him? Why Jesus? He's the sinless one. He has fulfilled the law, accomplished all that it requires. See, Jesus is not the man that God chose, and He's not the man who became God, and He's not more than a man but less than a God. He is very God of God, fully God and fully human in His flesh. And since He is God the law giver, He is God the grace bringer in that He lived among us in perfect obedience to His very own law. He showed us what the law is capable of as long as you're not plagued by sin. When Paul said the law was meant for life, Jesus shows us that this is true. Paul just, he he deduces that from the life of Christ. So how then does Jesus save us from our sin? Well, He's the one and only perfect, blameless sacrifice for our sin. Our sin isn't resolved by keeping more rules. Our sin is resolved by death. So Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died the death we deserved so that we could receive the blessing that He deserved. And when He rose from the dead, He showed us that sin is defeated once and for all by Him. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the greatest news that is the hardest to believe. We don't want to believe that we're sinful people. We don't want to believe that we're guilty before God. We don't want to believe that our sin is this powerful. But when you allow the Bible to diagnose you properly, truthfully, then you'll be ready to receive the cure that only Jesus provides. You have to turn away from your sin that deceives you, ambushes you, kills you. And you must turn to Jesus who loves you and receives you and saves you. That's when your declaration over your life will change from what a wretched person I am to what a saved person, a loved person, a redeemed person I am by the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has taken us to school today on the law of God. The law has benefits and it has limitations. And so here is the 
passage. Here is the sermon in a sentence. The law shows us our need for a Savior, but it is not our Savior. It shows our need for a Savior, but it is not our Savior. Our salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one that rescues us. The fact that we're saved by Christ and not by the law is why we worship as we do. It's why joy comes from us in every storm of life. So that our joy is not situational, it's not circumstantial. It is a rock-solid anchor in the midst of every headline, every devastating week, every bit of brokenness and, and challenge in our own lives. Not joy in terms of a plastic smile and something fake and phony. Not joy that ignores the reality of the brokenness around us. But it is an, a, a resolved hope that God is faithful and He is true and He is with us and He counts every tear and He knows the pain and He knows the hurt and He is bringing us through it all the way to His glory. That's why the end of chapter 7 is a proclamation of praise. The shortest praise song ever perhaps when Paul just says, Thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When he understands the proper place of the law, its benefits, its limitations, he results with praise and joy in what God has done for him and done for us through Christ crucified and risen again. We were mastered by our sin, but now we are dead to our sin. We were enemies of God, and now we're children of God, alive in Christ forevermore. So we're like Paul at the end of this passage, asking the question, who's going to rescue us? And we're like Paul in this passage, praising God for the rescue we've received through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we understand what God's law can and cannot do, and all that Jesus has done for us, what He has finished for us at the cross, the result is inescapable joy. And don't you think that joy will impact the way we interact with other people? We don't want to be a church or a people who are long on diagnosis and short on cure. Do you know people like that? The most miserable Christians on the planet. Everywhere they look, they see darkness and devastation, and they are void of the hope of Christ. Churches, entire churches that feel like their God-given mission is to scream into the void about how bad everything is. Brothers and sisters, we follow a Savior who ate and drank with sinners, who pursued them, who showed them grace and love and compassion. And if it was grace and compassion that put Christ on the cross, maybe it's grace and compassion that should mark his followers today. We don't follow a tyrant of a Savior. We follow a Savior who rode a donkey to his glory. In all humility, laid down his life for the sake of sinners, us right here. Wretched people made children of God through faith in the one who died for us. So many people want to point at the world and say, you're lost. But the mission of the church and South Shore Baptist Church is to point at the cross and say, here's rescue. This is for you. The greatest news you've ever heard and maybe never heard is that though you are broken and separated from God, you are rescued through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that the kind of Christian you want to be? The kind of church we want to be? You bet it is. 
Because these people around us and among us have to have this hope, the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us live in true eternal joy, knowing that the law gave our diagnosis and Christ has given us the cure. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this needed clarity. And Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us with our understanding this morning so that we could see clearly that the law, while the diagnosis for our sin, is not the cure. My prayer is for friends in here that, that don't know you as their Savior, that they would be drawn to the rescue that is in Christ alone this morning. Awaken their hearts to faith that they would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in here. God, you, you know how hard it is for us to, to face darkness in our own lives and the challenges in the world around us. But give us a resolute joy in Christ's finished work at the cross that results in our praise to you and our proclamation of the gospel to those around us. Lord, thank you for the hope we have in Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.